So we are in our, our series in the book of Acts. So we're going to be in a big uh, section of Scripture today. And that will be uh, Acts 6, 8 through Acts 8, 3. It's a huge uh, portion of, of Scripture. We're going to read that together, but with some explanation beforehand. Uh, it's another one of those passages that requires a little bit of uh, background work before you can really grasp what the, what the passage is saying. Uh, so if you need a Bible or would like a Bible, the usher would be happy to bring you one. You can put your hand in the air and they'll bring you a Bible. It's nice. It's not going to be on the screen, so it'll be, it'll be good to actually follow along in your own Bible. If you're like me, hearing the Word and reading it at the same time is helpful for you. It's your learning style. That's why I love the Kindle Fire. Oh my gosh. It reads to me while I read the book, and I love that. In a little robot voice. Fantastic. So a few weeks ago, we talked about this concept. People are people. People do what people do. And generally people, you know, especially in the Bible, people start out with something good, and then they twist it. They bring it into a bad direction. And, uh, and God had, had to constantly kind of reorient people in the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament through the Holy Spirit and through the apostles to not just go into their baser instincts. <laughs> uh, we, have, we have a sinful nature. It comes out. Uh, we, have, we have issues. Can't we agree people are people? Looking at the news, people are people. Looking into our own hearts. Uh, but then there's God. And God, thank God, is not people. God, we are made in God's image, but we are not God. And God is God, is God and God does amazing uh, things, including uh, helping us out. And God has an amazing vision for his people, for the people of the world, that uh, people have misunderstood and um, had, had a lot of difficulty with, I'll just say that. God's vision uh, was to have a people for himself originally. We think back to the patriarch, patriarchs, uh, Abraham, uh, in particular, God said to him, through your offspring, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. That's in Genesis, right in the f- first book of the Bible. So way back when, God said, through your offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. But sometimes uh, the, pe- the, pe- the people uh, who became the Israelite people uh, didn't really view things the same way that God did. They were like, okay, we're the special nation. We're supposed to call forth the praises of him who, who called us out, and we're supposed to bless all the nations. But they ended up um, sometimes missing the mark. We'll just say that. But God has this really big vision. Uh, we're going to look at a couple passages right off the bat. One's Matthew 28, and this is a very common uh, passage we, really every Christian usually has heard. It's kind of like the basis of our Vision, And this is Matthew 28, 18 through 20, known as the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them, the apostles, and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of some nations. Yeah, that's an old pastor trick, right? See, you're all listening. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here we see this God's vision coming through in the Great Commission, the same vision that he planted in Abraham. Through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. A big vision that God has for the world. And then we see, we have the privilege of seeing a prophetic, uh, future tense, uh, fulfillment of God's vision 
uh, in Revelation 7, 9. It's the last book in your Bible, if you're wanting to flip through this with me. So here we have a book about the end. This is, was revealed to, to John. Um, it says this. After this, I looked, and before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this, this is a, a really interesting vision. John saw this big group of people. And he was able to realize that these people were from every nation. Apparently, they weren't all a homogenized group that all looked the same or talked the same. He was able to recognize they were from different tribes. They were different people groups and different languages standing before the throne. And they were all wearing these white robes, waving these palm branches. So what, they, what all these people have in common is they're wearing the white robes. The white robes is symbolic of Jesus' holiness and righteousness, which is a gift to all who come to Jesus. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. We look to Jesus for a covering of atonement. That's what atonement means for our sins. And we are, we are covered in Jesus' righteousness. So when God looks at us, not only is our sin forgiven, he sees the righteous robes of Jesus on us. That's what all these people have in common. But they are a diverse crowd. Different tribes, different uh, languages. <coughs> Excuse me. It's the perils of one of these mics. Different tribes, different languages, all praising God, presumably in their own native tongue. It's a beautiful image. In other words, God does not choke out the diverse culture, cultural expressions, languages, and things when the end comes. In fact, it glorifies God greatly to have all these unique expressions coming together with one thing that holds, holds them all together in common. Jesus' righteousness and worship the palm branches, recognizing Jesus as the king. Just a beautiful vision. And we see that vision progressing, starting to pick up some steam in the book of Acts. It started out as a Jewish movement. Of course, Jesus, as we saw in Matthew 28, he said the movement is for all nations, ultimately. But it started out, uh, uh, Jesus, or or the Holy Spirit, Jesus, like a shepherd, is leading the church to this fulfillment of Jesus' ultimate end game, which is all nations, tribes, and tongues. So we see a movement from, from just uh, the, the Jewish people, and then we have the Hellenized Jews, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, coming to Christ. And we're about to see the gospel go out to another people group, uh, the Sumerians. And eventually we're going to see the gospel going out to the Gentiles, which is most of us. Most of us. So God's vision is coming, coming to fruition, and we're all a part of that. But in the midst of this, uh, people are people, and people do what people do, and they misunderstand, and they miss, miss, they miss it with God. And uh, something happened that's really relevant in regard to uh, the history of the Jewish people. After the time of King Solomon, David's son, 
the north, the, the Israel, God's people was split into two different camps. Okay, so you had the northern Israelite kingdom, which is called Israel, and they were separated from the southern Israelite kingdom, which was called Judah. You've probably heard these words. It's two different uh, groups from the same people. They were separated. And the, cap- the capital city of the northern kingdom was Samaria, okay? So the northern kingdom in Samaria. And after, uh, in 721 BC, the neighboring Assyrian nation to, to, to the northern Israelite kingdom uh, captured the Israelites. And, they, and as, as um, colonizing forces tend to do, they were trying to force them to kind of uh, come into line with their culture and customs. And so they forced uh, the Israeli people to intermarry with them. And it created this mixed Israelite-Assyrian race of people. And from that time, here we go with the people are people part, okay? From that time, the southern Israelites viewed the northern Israelites with disfavor. They were known as half-breeds. They were considered less than God's people. And that's a, that's a people thing. That's a people thing. That's what people do. The pure-blooded Jews thought of these uh, northern people who had been forced, by the way, forced to intermarry with, uh, with the Assyrians as a half-breed race. And it's a sad story. The Samaritans actually offered to help build the temple in Jerusalem. They offered to help the southern kingdom. And they got turned down, <laughs> which is really sad to think about that. And so they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And so the Samaritans, the northern kingdom, who, are, who were intermarried with the Assyrians and were considered impure half-breed people, they tried to be a part of God's people, but the, as people do, the southern kingdom said, no, you can't help us. You're not part of us. You're, you're half what we are. Get out of our lives. We despise you. And so they built their own temple. It's a logical solution. But then, adding insult to injury, uh, the Jews, the southern kingdom, destroyed their temple on Mount Gerizim. So this is all people being people. And we see this, uh, it kind of gives some, it informs our understanding of this passage about Jesus with the Samaritan woman. So after Jesus, Jesus had some prophetic words for this woman. Uh, He knew things about her that he couldn't have possibly known by the Spirit's Spirit's inspiration. And he, he pointed out some sins in this woman's life and and she changed the subject quickly, as, we, as most of us do. <laughs> when God points out sin, we often change the subject, right? So if we feel convicted in church, then we're like, okay, where, where do we go for lunch? You know, <laughs> change the subject on God. It's very common. I do it, you do it, we all do it. Let's uh, try not to do that as much anymore. But anyway, this woman changes the subject. She turns it into a theological conversation. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. That's somewhat, somewhat obvious to her at that time. I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, is what she's pointing to here. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now you have to understand that's a crazy thing for Jesus to say. That would have been very offensive to the, the Jews who were worshiping in Jerusalem at the temple. It would have been offensive to the Samaritans uh, who were who, in these two groups. It would have been offensive to everybody because the temple was so central to people's worship uh, style. Uh, you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans wor- worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's pointing out in salvation history, 
The gospel hasn't gone to the Samaritans yet, but it's through the Jewish people that this message is coming into fruition. So you, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Uh, but a time is coming, and now it's come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. God is, uh, for this, these are the kinds of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So, uh, you know how people say that God, that Jesus never claims to be God in the Bible? It's a bunch of hogwash. It happens constantly, indirectly and directly. And here's one example of Jesus very clearly saying, I am the Messiah, called the Christ, the Savior who was to come. And it's, it's a... It's a really neat thing because she hears his, him saying the, all these words. You know, there's a time coming when we're not going to worship either of these places. It's now come. And then she's like, well, I don't know about that. I'll wait till, till the Messiah comes to explain it to me. And he goes, hey, that's me. Pretty cool. So this is a big deal. This illustrates, uh, this, this, this story illustrates what it was like to be a Samaritan, a northern Jew versus a southern Jew, and that kind of animosity. They were always uh, the, the people-are-people aspect of, of human history. <coughs> uh, Samaritans were, were called dogs and horrible things. You know, these horrible things that were, hap- that were, that were done. And I, th- I think it's really interesting when you talk to people about the Bible, uh, many times when you get into these different arguments, they talk about, they talk about uh, you know, the Bible it says these things. But the Bible is just recounting history. It's not a pretty picture all the time. Uh, many times in the Bible, uh, in, in the history sections, it's just saying, this is what people were doing. People were behaving badly like people always behave. But then the part that's really impactful is what, what God does, right? So this gives you a, uh, a picture of God's vision fleshed out in Christ. That there will be neither Samaritans nor you know, Jews who are full Jews. Uh, There will neither be this mountain or that mountain. It will be everyone, everywhere, all nations, all tribes, all tongues, God's vision. This week, I had the pleasure of being interviewed by a couple of Skidmore students for for a project about the connection of being an evangelical and politics. So their professor gave them a list of churches, and then they, they called the evangelical ones and left messages, presumably. So I ended up with two of these calls, and I think I was the only one maybe who returned calls. I ended up with tons of these things. I thought, what a neat opportunity to meet someone and go somewhere different and talk about faith, and I thought it'd be really cool. And it was. It was very cool. And then I got another call yesterday from someone else who's going to be interviewing me. So I told him, I know what the questions are, so you got to be on your A game. Uh, I hope I get college credit for this. I mean, that's like... It seems like I should get some credit for that. I even went to Skidmore. I was like in a recording studio, you know. But uh, that was really, really interesting. And uh, it, through the conversation, I, I think with, with both people that I talked with, there was a getting to know each other kind of phase where it was kind of question-answer, question-response, question-response, and then kind of a comfortability, and then we got to really talk. And I really enjoyed that a lot. And these were some very smart um, and uh, interesting respectful, intelligent students. 
And the thing, one of the things I was so proud to say to this person, the people who interviewed me, was, as far as my church goes, it's a somewhat, it's a very interesting church because it's politically diverse as far as people's political views, and I get to pastor everybody. So we have people at our church who are some more politically conservative-leaning people. We have some people that are politically uh, liberal-leaning people. We have people that consider themselves independents in the church, uh, people that would consider themselves to be progressives in the church. And it's not just a, a it's not kind of like a rah-rah club, we all agree with about everything in politics. And, and I, I know this because I have Facebook, so I understand. <laughs> I understand. But in terms of age, uh, some, some cultural stuff, if you think uh, in politics, we have a diverse community. And I really enjoy that. I really enjoy it because it gives us all an opportunity to listen to one another. And as Christians, you know, there's certain uh, relational principles uh, that really help us when it comes to talking about politics and, and faith and all these kind of charged things that people are very passionate about. And, you know, the Bible says, you know, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Do unto others. Consider others better than yourselves. Uh, consider someone else's thoughts and opinions. You know, be, you know, be open to talking and having conversations. So I appreciate that our church is not completely, you know, globbed together. Because for me, that, that diversity is a picture of the kingdom diversity. There, there's political diversity. There's ethnic diversity, language, lingual diversity. Uh, in, the kingdom, in the coming kingdom of God, there's just a great deal of diversity. So it's very interesting. Um, I downloaded a, a song this week. It was a remake of a song by an artist that I really enjoy his, his writing, and I consider him to be somewhat prophetic as far as his, his writing. And uh, he, the line that really struck me hearing this this week, he says this, There are two great lies that I have heard. The day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you shall not surely die. And that Jesus Christ was a white middle-class Republican. <laughs> and if you want to be saved, you have to learn to be like him. So that's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, thought, and I felt like in those interviews, that was the assumption going in, that that's, that's, everyone is completely uh, homogeneous in the body of Christ. But... Uh, but uh, the interesting thing, when you talk about Christians with diverse political views like I do, and I pastor a church of Christians with diverse political views, and even talk in the community with other, other pastors that think wildly different things than me about, about all these different kinds of issues, um, I find that uh, you begin to see that with people that are sincerely following Christ— even if you disagree with their positions on various things, I'm using politics as an example, when, when you share that common faith in Christ, the white robe, uh, you, can, you can come around to see, like, why, what undergirds their opinions and thoughts. You know, what is the deeper, how are they trying to honor God with this political, political view? And I find it very interesting. And uh, the problem today is that no one really listens to each other. And usually when, when you're talking to people, they are not listening to you, but they're more anticipating their response, what their response will be when you stop talking, or perhaps a little bit before. So that's kind of the culture that we live in. Um, but I think that Jesus really, the, the Holy Spirit gives us a different way uh, to listen to one another. I'm, I'm really happy to be part of a church that has some diversity in age, in politics, some ethnic diversity, language diversity. It's a picture of the kingdom. I love it. That's what... 
uh, Jesus came to, to redeem. Uh, in Jesus' day, there was, of course, a great diversity of culture, cultural practices, and thoughts. But uh, the, the religious, what you need to know about the religious establishment in, uh, in Jerusalem at the temple, they were Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. They did not find diversity uh, fun or cool <laughs> or interesting. Um, they believed and really could not be convinced otherwise that God was and would continue to be only for them, only for the Jews, and the only place to worship God was in Jerusalem. Uh, And so the the temple in Jerusalem was a huge deal. You speak against the temple, you mess with the temple, you mess with me. You know, kind of thing. The law given by Moses, huge deal. It's almost like it was set in stone for them. Anyone? It's like it was set in stone twice. Remember that story when, when God chiseled out the Ten Commandments? Moses came down and found the people being people. They had fashioned a golden calf to worship. He's like, this, is, this makes me so mad he smashed them. <laughs> and then God made new ones. I think it's like, what, he must have been really mad to smash something God made. I, mean, I, I don't know. I think that's, Moses was a man of great passion, which is, it's an interesting guy. We're going to talk about him today. Uh, um, so the temple, the law, the Holy Land, Jerusalem, right? And the national ethnic identity of the family of all Jews and the proselytes. The Jews actually were okay with uh, people becoming Jewish, but, they ha- but people had to renounce their culture to do it fully. I mean, uh, they had to repudiate their native culture. They had to consent, consent to becoming Jewish through baptism and circumcision of the males. Uh, they had to, and, and, the, and the Jewish people sent out bands of, of missionaries to get people to become Jews. And then, uh, then it was kind of acceptable for them to say, okay, you can have access to our God now, now that you've been circumcised as an adult. That's rough. <laughs> um, but people were kind of forced to renounce their cultural identity and all that stuff according to the purists in the temple, in order to uh, have contact with God. And so the temple, uh, the law, Moses, all this stuff, non-negotiable, and it's going to get you in big trouble if you do something like Stephen did. Stephen was, we're going to read in Acts uh, 7-8. We're going to read this whole section, maybe a little comments uh, here and there. But Stephen, of course, was one of the seven people that got hands laid on him by the apostles and was empowered to be, be more or less a minister to the, uh, to the Hellenized Jewish faction. So uh, he was one of these people that, that had uh, miraculous, he had a gift of, uh, seemed to have a gift of miracles, a gift of miraculous power. So he was doing signs that could not be refuted by anyone, no matter who they was. And uh, he had uh, a prophetic insight. He had a boldness that comes only from the Holy Spirit. So he's a remarkable person, and they, they say that in this passage. It says, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, 
who began to argue with Stephen. Now, this is a Hellenized, um, this would be a Hellenized church. So this is like uh, people, Jews, uh, Jews that are like the Greeks. That's what Hellenized Jews were. So this is, uh, these synagogues were uh, of, of the Hellenized folks. And Stephen probably would have been part of one of these synagogues because he himself was a Hellenized Jew. So the church of the freedmen. So they began to argue with Stephen in verse 9. Then verse 10, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, gave Stephen great wisdom as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, oh, we, we heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin, which is like the Supreme Court here in the, in the high church of the temple. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. We've heard him say that the Jesus of Nazareth would destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So you can see why those things would be offensive in particular to these folks. Uh, the holy place, the law, the temple. They're pretty much hitting it out of the park with these false accusations. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Something about Stephen. The Holy Spirit was powerfully ignited in Stephen. And just like Moses was this great leader who went to the top of the mountain, got the Ten Commandments, came down, and his face was glowing. You know, there's something about Stephen that just glowed with the presence of God and with a, a, a charisma of the Spirit. He appeared like an angel. Chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? And Stephen doesn't defend himself against the charges at all. He doesn't. And you know what? Those charges were not really true. Stephen would not have spoken against Moses and the law. He was a Jew himself. He wouldn't have spoken against the temple. He, he worshipped at the temple himself. But he did not defend himself against these very serious charges. He instead gave them a history lesson from their own history book. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So where did Abraham meet God? In Mesopotamia, not in the temple, not in Jerusalem. He's building a case. God can be met somewhere besides the temple and somewhere besides Jerusalem. They're getting nervous. So Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, talking of Egypt. They will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs.
because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, so Joseph, of course, the chosen, the chosen son, the patriarchs set themselves up as being jealous of Joseph. They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. I want you to, this is, this is selective history telling. I mean, it's, he's not giving the exhaustive story. He's definitely implying uh, the patriarchs oppressed God's chosen person. Hint, hint, that's what you guys are doing. Get with the picture. So the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into, as a slave in Egypt, uh, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over, over all Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was no grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who, who he was, and, after, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham, Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Shechem is in Samaria. There's kind of a hint here. The gospel is going to Samaria, okay? As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speak and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Here's another little head nod. Uh, What Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin is, once again, Moses is another guy who the religious people of the time uh, gave no credibility to and didn't recognize that he was part of God's plan. That's two, so two, two examples so far. The next day, Moses came upon uh, two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. All right, so God met Moses in not Jerusalem, not the temple. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, trembling with fear, trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground not in the temple or in Jerusalem. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
and he led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. God's man being rejected by people in history who should have known better. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who's led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made the idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what was written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel, you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Stephen is implying that the, the Jews of his day were worshiping the temple and, the, and Jerusalem. And they had taken God out of his rightful place and made a golden calf out of this temple that God had created to be the place where he was worshipped. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under, under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So here people are worshiping God anywhere that the tabernacle was set down. Not in Jerusalem, not in the temple. God was able to be met anywhere. So when Solomon said he wanted to build a house for God, uh, it says, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? So this is, this is a scathing kind of commentary on what the temple and the law had become for these people. Um, God, he's using, Stephen is using scripture from the, their own Bible to say, look, you guys are off. And then he kind of clinches this thing. You stiff-necked people, Stephen says. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. He's now accusing them of killing Jesus. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You know, the Bible talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus is giving a standing ovation. Jesus is, it, it's, you have the Sanhedrin who is an earthly court. And, Jesus, and, and what Stephen is saying is, I see a higher court, and they're finding me not guilty right now. And in, in doing that, they're pronouncing you people guilty. So go ahead and stone me. And when he said that, they covered their ears, and, ye and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. 
While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's what Jesus said when he died. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. That's what Jesus said. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. We're going to stop there. Of course, we know this is Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul that would come to Christ dramatically and then become the Apostle to the Gentiles, uh, who was giving approval of, uh, of the killing of Stephen. The band's going to come up and lead us in a closing song. But the takeaways uh, I want to give from this sermon are really uh, relevant. You do not need to renounce uh, your culture to become a follower of God. So what Stephen was basically saying was, these people do not have to become circumcised. And later, again, Paul also says this in Galatians. You do not need to become Jewish and go through these rituals to be connected to God. You do not need to renounce your culture to be a Christian, but the nature of Christianity is that God himself permeates the cultures of the people who come to him. And he redeems those cultures, and he creates a beautiful, diverse church. And I, I thought about trying to find some videos of other kinds of worship services around the world. I mean, you would be shocked, and you would feel so out of place in other places where they're worshiping Jesus in the, in the white robes, just like us. But it's so different because instead of... of putting another culture on top of them and saying, you need to be like us before you can become a Christian. Um, God's done this beautiful work in the indigenous church where they worship Jesus in their own way. And they, they're, they don't have to become Western or we don't have to become Eastern. We don't have to become anything but what we are. And God redeems the culture. Jesus wants to create a unique expression through diverse cultures. And that's what the kingdom will look like. The second takeaway from this message is we need, to, in light of this, we need to change the way that we look at other people in our city, in our lives, because people that are part of subcultures in our city, people that are from different, uh, different ethnic cultures, people that speak different languages, you can read on the back of the news sheet about uh, immigrants and refugees from our denomination, people that are different from us, uh, they, God, is, God is trying to rescue every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we need to look at people differently uh, that we'd normally judge and write off and say to ourselves, I wonder if God wants to save that person so that they can reach their people. You know, in the tattoo parlors, in the hookah bar, in the regular bar, at the, at, uh, the concert venue. Um, there, are, there are people that need to be, come to Christ and be discipled from all of those places. And we need to look at those people differently. And we need to think, is God trying to make a richer uh, picture of the church through this person and pray for them and, see, and seek uh, sharing Christ with them? And finally, the, 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 the clincher is we all have access to God. This was mes- the message from last week. He's as close as a breath away. And it was read today in the call to worship. It was almost prophetic what Ed read. Um, let, you, let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. The imminent presence of God is here on us. We can access God anywhere, not just in a temple, not just through being a part of a certain culture. Um, we can access, the message of Stephen is that all of us can access God through Jesus Christ. And the only way to, and again, that's, that's a condition though. Coming to Christ is the condition. Receiving that, that white robe that symbolizes the forgiveness of sin and the righteous covering of Jesus. And once we have that, we become a Christian and God becomes closer than our breath.
Um, his, his presence is so near to us. And I hope that you take advantage of that this week, uh, of your Father's nearness and his desire to spend time with you. Um, the Father wants to have close communion with you. And he is calling you deeper. And it does not matter um, your stumblings and your sin or even your baggage. Um, you can come right to God through Jesus and he will sort it out. Uh, so as we worship God, let's keep that thought in mind. I'm going to bless you as you go today. May you catch the big vision that God has for this world and join in the Great Commission to reach all people with the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ and teaching them everything that Jesus commanded. And may you see others.